Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. The Universal Machine is a musical about the life of Alan Turing, the Second World War codebreaker and mathematician who has become known as the father of modern computer science. Turing had a tragic life. His work as a codebreaker was never recognized until long after his death because he was classified. And in the early 50s, he was convicted of indecency on account of his homosexuality, and he was chemically castrated as a result. He later died in mysterious circumstances. The official verdict was suicide by eating an apple laced with cyanide, but this has been debated. Setting such a tragic story to music may seem like a strange choice, but we really, really like the show, and you can read a review of it on the PLUS website at plus.maths.org. And a little after going to see the show, we were lucky enough to be able to interview the director, David Byrne, the assistant director, Natalie York, and Richard Delaney, who gave a brilliant performance playing Turing. I started out by asking David Byrne what on earth made him decide to produce a musical rather than just a play of Turing's life. Well, I think like a lot of the other projects we've done as a company, it's an idea that really fascinated us, a story that really fascinated us. And we thought, oh, it's been done, we can't do it, we'll move on. But you start to read and you start to discover that around the story we knew, there were lots of other really interesting things that no one had really covered before. So the more we started reading about that, we thought, well, there's definitely something here. And in a really boring business way, we put it in a business plan, which we published about two years ago. And we had so many phone calls and emails from people about this project we were going to do in 2015 that we thought oh we'd better move it forward uh, just in case someone does it first um, so that's how it sort of came about and I think the reason it, it's musicalised um, we always start with trying to work out what the core of that story is and how we're going to put it together and, and, and the basics of the story very early on were that Alan was a man who, who had incredible intelligence and, and could see patterns and things thinking around him but was failing to make connections with those in his life and the people around him were far more at ease and erudite and sort of were gliding seamlessly through um, situations that he found incredibly difficult the things that we find most natural to ourselves and it seemed very logical to find a language in which people could physically move in a very um, sort of easy and sort of free way and were able to emotionally express themselves and song and dance seemed perfectly right for that not traditional song and dance like you get in sort of like a chorus line but to use music and movement in a in a choreographed way that would act like salt on the story to really bring that out in a more theatrical sense and that seemed right we really fought against it for ages but we couldn't find mm. anything that quite fitted it as nicely mm. so that's sort of what's musical that and he did so much and the more, um, especially, I mean, Dickie's done a huge amount of research on Alan, and the more that we find out about him, the more the story expands and expands and expands. And to condense it down, you need to find a form that means that you can get across the emotional truth of a situation and move on. And a traditional play or a film, <clears throat> that takes a long time, yeah. you know. If, if you meet someone in a film and two people fall in love, you know, they meet, and then you have a whole series of sort of various misunderstandings and, and that goes on and on. In something that you use music and song for, you can sing a song and in three minutes you have established that relationship yeah. and you've got it and you can yeah. move on with your story. That's, that's great because we were discussing it afterwards, thinking like, why, you know, why was it musical? And that's one mm. of the things we came up with, that we thought, mm. because the story is so dense, and emotionally complicated as well as scientifically complicated. Mm. There, yeah, it's a different way to get, get things across that is just much more compact, I suppose. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's what we thought. That's interesting. So um, were you familiar with Alan Turing and his biography before you kind of started approaching this role? 
not really. No, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about him vaguely. I sort of had a, uh, some sort of clue that he was someone who was involved with breaking the Enigma code, and that that was about it, really. Um, and then when I was sort of first approached about the about the project, um, I started to do a little bit of background reading, uh, and I reached for the I think it was the Hodges I went for first. After probably after Wikipedia, shame yeah. on me. <laughs> yeah, sort of a quick bit of googling to see what, what, what I'd let myself in for. Um, and yeah, and then sort of worked my way through that. And I'd, I'd, it really whet my appetite as well, more than anything else, because I just hadn't anticipated this year the sheer scope and the, the mm. epic nature of this. I mean, because it, it's a, it really is a quite short life. I mean, mm. and you know, and to achieve so much in such a short time mm. uh, it is phenomenal. Um, and it, it really did whet my appetite, and just sort of went on to read as much as I could, um, which, which is always a danger as well, I suppose, when you're approaching a, a project, because the idea is, is often to do your research um, and then forget about it and just concentrate with the, the task at hand um, which has been harder to do with this project strangely uh, you desperately want to keep, sort of keep hold of a lot of the information you've got I think because it's it is so timely it's, there's a especially with its centenary year and, and knowing sort of knowing some of its family and, and people who were connected with the story were coming to see it it feels like it has a real importance to, yeah. to be told and it is an important yeah. story that yeah. I think people aren't aware enough no, and how how do you feel about the lack of pardon <laughs> that he's? I mean, he still has not been officially pardoned. Mm. It's. I imagine that. I imagine there are a hundred political reasons for for for, for that happening. I mean, I, I think the pardon's obviously a very symbolic thing of, of, of sort of recognition. I, I think what's more important than the pardon is the fact that his work and his life is becoming more and more talked about and more and more discussed. I mean, Alan Turing, I would say, is more famous now than at any point. Yeah. since his death mm. and he's becoming more and more famous and actually that's I think has been a bit strange for the families that come because we've had families from all the show uh, from all the characters in the show Max Newman's family are in tonight uh, his granddaughter and you these people you know who've, especially Christopher Morecambe's family came who was Alan's school friend um, until the age of 19 where he passed away obviously the early parts of their life they wouldn't have even really known who this person was apart from a nephew of theirs that passed away very young and suddenly they're going to see plays about him and, and his his work and his writings and his letters are becoming you know discussed and opened up and for Alan's family I think that's more and more I mean mm. there's very few people you can ask about Alan Turing now and they wouldn't know and I think what Dickie said was really interesting that he knew a little bit about him you know I think we've found that with the audiences have come a lot of people have their own Alan Turing mm. we've had a lot of people from the gay community come for which Alan Turing has become a real figurehead of, of that sort of movement of someone who is absolutely brilliant and sort of faced persecution in the incredibly recent past. We've had people from Bletchley Park come uh, for whom he is a figurehead for all of the unrecognised work those people did in the Second World War. We've had people from the computer movement come for whom he is one of the, the sort of godfathers of the original thinking with computable numbers and obviously the, 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 the um, Turing Welshman bomb. We've had people from his family come who you know are, are starting to sort of rediscover things about their, their, their sort of long nephew. Even now they're getting letters and things about things they didn't know about and everyone has their own slice of him. And that's been really fascinating. Yeah. To try and put something together that satisfies all of those people has been has been a real challenge. And I'm glad we didn't think about it too much yeah. before. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it would have. Yeah. Yeah. We've been. How, really how did the family react? Um, incredibly react? well. Mm. Um, we were really flattered. I mean, they they spoke to you particularly. I mean, they they there's. I think it's very strange for them because. Um, 
Dickie looks quite a lot like Alan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there was there was an audible gasp the night um, the, the 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 nieces were in, um, and when Dickie sort of stepped out, sort of through the sort of haze, and there are moments and mannerisms. Obviously, Dickie's been looking into which which are incredibly close. Um, Judith, who plays uh, Sarah Chung, Alan's mother, apparently has got her down to a T. It was harder with her because there's less about her. There's lots by her, but very little about her. And I think they found that very peculiar. I think they've liked the way we've told the story. I think a lot of the stories previously have sensationalised it and have focused on the suicide or focused on the arrest. And mm. I think there's a lot of questions surrounding that. And I think they feel it's been trivialised a little bit. Mm. So I think what they've liked about this is that there's been something that has really addressed it in a sort of really robust, sort of mm. rounded way and that hasn't made any big yeah. presumptions. Yeah. Um, I found the way in which the those things, the suicide came across, for example. I, I really liked that as well because it was dropped in early and it was mm. dropped in in a kind of quite unspectacular way. So it mm. was taking away this potential over-dramatization yes. of it. Yeah, I like that. And again, the more we find out about the suicide the less likely it seems to be that it was suicide. It is disputed that it was a suicide. Yes. The coroner um, who who uh, declared that it, that it was suicide, um, there was the smell of almonds, wasn't it, in, in, in the body. Um, but apparently he was very gung-ho at sort of diagnosing this. The apple he was supposed to have eaten and taken the suicide off was never examined or checked for suicide, you know, for um, cyanide on it. He had bought, I mean, we found all sorts of weird facts out. I mean, the no note was left behind uh, by Alan. He was an incredibly ordered man. He'd bought new clothes that morning. Um, there was no sign really beforehand. There's lots of things, and they did find some things in his house which could have meant it was an accident of death. He had a room in his house called the Nightmare Room where he used to keep all of his chemicals, and he was an incredibly messy man. And it's it could be likely that he got it on hands or his clothes or something else, and it just transferred across. Right. So the alternative explanation is accidental yes. death. Okay. There are conspiracy theorists that also <laughs> say that it could be the British government. He was um, he met a man in Norway um, just before his death, which he tried to bring across uh, back to the, back to England. And um, I think it was was it um, was it GCHQ at the time? I can't remember which government department it was, but they barred the man from coming across, and they potentially put him under watch as well. So he's being watched around that period of time. It's it's all very muddied, and I think it's it's too easy almost. We decided it was far too easy to go down that route of having, and you can't stage ambiguity I'm sure Dickie would have had a good go at it <laughs> but you can't you can't have he either actively put it on the apple and chose to eat it and kill himself or he accidentally did it and one of the challenges we had was like well how do we even begin to deal with that you know and, and by restructuring it slightly and sort of setting up so you know it happens and building it around we found a way of being able to make it unsure for the audience and some people have said oh I like the way you left it open other people have said oh I like the way you dealt with the suicide <laughs> yeah. said, I like the yeah. fact that you say he doesn't kill himself so I think again people are able to and I think Dickie's performance is wonderful at this people are able to project their own Alan Turing onto him and on to the situation, which I think has led to a lot of people who are experts about it really liking it. Mm. And um, given that th those people who do know, know about Alan Turing, they will know the basic facts, code breaker, he was gay, then he got then the suicide. Um, what kind of things did you find out that, that were surprising, about, like taking this kind of skeletal story for granted? That was surprising. Oh, good yeah. grief. Uh, well, I mean, for me, most of it was surprising because obviously my, my knowledge was quite sort of mm. um, patchy to start with. 
Um, I mean, I think what I found quite interesting on the journey of trying to, to sort of find out about Alan was is the fact that, in contrast to Sarah, his, uh, mm. his mother, where there's a lot of stuff that she has written, um, and Alan has a lot of stuff written about him, there's not a lot of emotional content, and especially as, a, as an actor, the stuff that you're trying to sort of look for, ideally if you're playing a, a, a real person, um, you know, you, you, you reach for any sound bites, you reach for any uh, video footage, and, and of course there's nothing of that. Um, I think the BBC did have stuff, I found, that um, most of it was uh, destroyed about in the, about the 70s. So Which no video a, footage. No, so there was. So how did you get? Because you, you mentioned just now that the family were just impressed by the similarity, but also mannerisms. So how did you get that? Uh, it it takes probably a um, tiny pinch of imagination as well to go with it. Um, but you know, you're sort of looking at any photo, any photos that are there, any sort of reoccurring um, postural sort of um, quirks or anything like that. Um, there are uh, brief mentions of him, sort of a. Uh, sort of biting his nails and sort of uh, also the reference to you know, Ricketts when he was younger so that sort of informed the way he walked I mean you don't want to create too much of a caricature or anything like that but you know there's there's elements that you can tap into um, but I, you know, I don't think it's a any strange coincidence that so many of the books that are written after him as well are also called The Enigma you know this is a man who who had escaped public like for, for so long I mean he wasn't really f yeah. famous until the 70s really till the, all the yeah. information came came available to us mm -hmm. yeah yeah um, there's such contradictory information about oh, him yeah. isn't there yeah. so contradictory yeah. you don't even need to look at the sort of three major biographies to even see the the, the, the difference. radical differences yeah. between sort of views and the, yeah. the angles that they've taken on it yeah. what and about the it was even more extreme I mean the we the Turing family have been back a few times now and um, I she, they were talking to um, one of the nieces and her grandson and she said oh you haven't got the laugh right and because apparently he has a high pitched laugh and I said oh you know we gave a good go at it and she said no it's so bad people used to leave the room <laughs> because they couldn't listen to it it was so high it was sort of deafening I think god you know I'm quite glad we didn't know that I mean, <laughs> yeah. the temptation to try and push you to that level yeah really and um, I was particularly thinking about childhood things um, how closely they were um, related to biographical stuff, especially this thing about um, him mentioning really early on that he wanted to be a machine. Yes. Um, where did that, is, is that, did, did he say that? Is there a record yes. of him? Okay. Um, he had a um, childhood book called Natural Wonders That Every Child Should Know, which was a big influence on him, and he wrote about it later in his life, and he sort of had it his whole life. It was a very heretical book. It was an American book that was published around 1912, and it was one of the first books um, about nature and science which talked about it in a very uh, non-sort of ecclesiastical sort of religious way. Um, so it talked about the body being a machine. It talked about, you know, how nature grew. I mean, we've had it in rehearsals because we've found the actual book for the show. I mean, Dickie, because Dickie has to read it quite a lot, has been fascinated by, by the chapters. I think our favourite was The Ants, you know? Ants, Ants, Yeah, Ants, Yeah, and it was the early... Because he was a very scientific boy. He... Um, you know, was always sort of making iodine, trying to make iodine, was, you know, looking at nature, was sort of getting really messy sort of out in the mud, wherever they were. And this book was a huge influence. And one thing we really wanted to do with this piece, and I, th I think all sort of mathematicians and scientists sort of have this throughout their career, is the narrative of his research. 
So it very much started with that book. You can trace everything back to the early genesis of his work there. And then the work that he did, because he then went off to um, Sherborne and him and his friend Christopher were disproving theories from Einstein and Newton that had only been professionally disproved year, you know, a few years earlier. They would have no access to that sort of information. And they started to work on the idea of this, you know, machine that could that could think and could work. And that fed into his um, university work, computable numbers. He was already thinking about that. Max, Max, Max Newman at university who asked a lot of questions along Turing's line of interest. And while a lot of other people were apparently very sceptical at university about the sort of research he was doing, and he was passed over for job after job after job, you know, he kept working on this. And then after the war, obviously, he built the machines that, that could think and were working like a brain. You know, they were calculating and discarding information and working towards a solution rather than something that did a simple function, which did something. This was working things out. He then went on to the morphogenesis stuff, which was he said, well, machines are like people and like nature. And then he started to find mechanical traits in nature all around him. And I mean, things like the Fibonacci sequence have been written about beforehand, but he brought all of these sort of hypotheses together to sort of say, look, there is a master plan here. There is graph paper under nature. All of this is obeying sort of certain rules. And I think he, he went from finding the human in the machine to the machine behind everything. Mm. And how much did you, <coughs> any of you, get into his mathematical work? Um, brief to be honest um, I mean I, I sort of in, in terms of sort of uh, where they fell within his lifetime and, and, and what the cause and effect of his work was I looked into um, but the actual principles of, of the of his work um, it was brief just because that doesn't really fathom him unfortunately we had moments in rehearsals where we did try and stop and sort of go okay <laughs> this is what this is about and this is this is sort of what happened being like a semi-nervous breakdown on the yeah, side of the room yeah. quite a lot of his early work he was able to say practical use of this because he was using it to solve uh, very sort of almost esoteric mathematical problems rather than you know working out how can we microwave food with this yeah. or something that's very useful yeah. I mean Dom looked into it an awful lot I mean the music contains an awful yeah. lot of patterning and uh, mathematics um, that really fits his work and okay. the people from Bletchley Park have come I think it's Professor Barry Green wrote us a letter saying I saw it all <laughs> and really yes and they've really got it um, okay. he did an interview uh, with um, Five Live which went out uh, I think a few days ago which I listened to this afternoon he said if you come and want to know about Turing and you like Turing you'll enjoy it but if you know a huge amount like the readers of Bletchley Park will absolutely love this you know because I think for them it's sort of like bathing in the chocolate of all of their research I mean <laughs> yeah. for them it's a sort of sweet shop of references and, and notes and they more than anyone else understood Dom's music and what Dom had tried to achieve and communicate with them. And can can you give an example? I mean, it's obviously difficult without listening, but mm. is there a way? Fibonacci features it an awful lot right. later on. Um, the the repetition of 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 notes that gain and sort of go round and round in circles. Um, things like the bomb. Uh, we'd have a sequence at the end of the first half where the, where they they build the bomb and the, the sort of yeah where the the sort of movements. I mean, the bomb is a very weird machine to look at because all the cogs are moving in slightly different patterns and at slightly different speeds and he tried to 
with the different uh, rounds of them singing, they are there to imitate the, the the sort of different turnings of the of the inner workings of the machine that was sort of happening. Mm. Um, we go from very sort of uh, slabby sort of uh, ensemble numbers where you know the thing about their sport and it's very bang 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 to the police which is bang 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 again. And as soon as you go inside his head, you know, with those sort of numbers, it's this intricate sort of patterning and this sort of looping of, of ideas and thoughts against again and again and again and you know that he was really keen on making sure that that was that was sort of there and you know, he can go into huge amounts of detail as to how that works and he used synthesizers that would have been around at the time to right. communicate the mechanics of that as well as various bits of bits of soundscaping to try and get that across with the with with the sort of work yeah even things like um and most people wouldn't notice it but underneath the um sequence where they're talking about the enigma machine there are there are moments of of the, the sort of turning of rotors and the and the, the rounds that go round so you know the first one going round and the one moving progressing and it progressing as it clicks into a certain space you know he he really does overthink these things yeah. <laughs> to a level that, that only one man <laughs> seems to have understood but it does add a texture to it that really mm. that did really you want helps. to say so uh, well, I suppose I suppose what was great actually about what, when we were talking about um, sort of talking about the mathematics in rehearsals, all those sorts of things. What was great in rehearsals was actually that would really genuinely stop the rehearsal because none of us would really understand it. We would all have so many questions, mm-hmm. and it was it was amazing actually to see the rehearsal literally come to a standstill as everyone would suddenly actually have so many questions about um, mm-hmm. about these about uh, especially sort of the mathematical side of things, things like the Entscheidings problem. Um, because I think most of us really were sitting there very much not understanding, and that was that was a great, um, weirdly a great place to be from it. Because you actually you got a sense of quite how big these problems were, how complicated, how broad, um, and just sort of petrifying yeah. some of us because yeah, we didn't know how correct really. we were. Because there's so yeah. much that I remember one day someone asked because obviously the, the play skips through quite a lot of material because obviously Alan's work at Bletchley Park was great, but it was only one part of the work at Bletchley Park. And someone asked, so what happened after this? And to have to sit down and try to explain the different types of enigma and the different types of machine that were built and how they all worked, I'm hoping I'm getting this right. Someone <laughs> will ask them on a, an interview for a, for Plus magazine, <laughs> and we will we will we will we will get it wrong. Um, so we we hope it's there as much as as much as it, it can be. We were googling as we went, trying yes. to check yes. all of the facts. Yeah. But, but I think uh, what came across quite well as well is this this massive span because I mean his logical work is basically meta-mathematics yeah. whereas the Bletchley Park stuff is completely applied number cr- um, crunching so so I think I thought that scope came across quite well because it would have been maybe tempting to just reduce it to the code breaking work and yeah. say oh that's just you know building a machine that goes through yeah because people yeah. imagine him as this code breaker sitting there yeah. finding this sort of secret code right. whereas actually what he did was yeah. find ways of mechanicalizing thought and and Solutions, really. I well, mean, what, what, what is actually fascinating is when you discover the life, and you do discover that that breadth of work that you did cover. You know, yeah. that thing, that's that's when it becomes really exciting. Very few people know about the morpho uh, mm. genesis, genesis side. Mm, that's a great little yeah, and it's idea. perfect. <laughs> and it's and you know, we, we, it's very briefly touched on in the show. Um, we we do it alongside the sort of chemical castration because it's all about the equilibrium of uh, of nature and how when you interfere with that you know that's when when things start to go awry which is obviously perfectly timed for you know his 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 own sort of hormone injections and that sending him on a path that potentially led to him taking his own life or at least 
you know, be in a place where people could realistically think that might have happened. Mm. So, you know, it's incredibly dramatically convenient. <laughs> um, but, you yes. know, we, we, we try to touch on everything to give a breath because I don't think anything else has really tackled all of the work or at least given the audience the idea of the breadth of work that he might have he might have spanned over his life. How much did you agonize um, about how much kind of mathematical content to bring across? I mean, I suppose the Enigma machine that was brought across very well, mm. but that's probably not too hard because you you know, mm. it's about combinations and there's loads of yeah. them. Mm. Well, but but how much do you think about like how much to include from the Entscheidungsproblem or mm. from from other areas condensing it was really difficult and mm. you either some of the stuff you either go into in full detail or just say I've had this idea and you look at a piece of paper and go that's a good idea let's do that <laughs> um, the Enigma machine I mean we try to find the most basic root of everything so we describe how the Enigma machine worked but we describe how the commercial Enigma machine worked which is a very basic model I think there were four or five versions of the Enigma machine that were built and they get more and more and more complicated to the point where it would take 10 or 15 minutes to sort of explain it through properly you start to put reflectors in and plug boards and you start to get you know a, a variant current going through it becomes almost impossible to really go into that and the same with a lot of the work you know how far do you go into that and I mean morphogenesis you know we looked at it you know we had all the papers there and went through it in quite a lot of detail and to go well what do we need to know and the fact that you know it's about nature and equilibrium it doesn't make any new any real new ideas it's the idea of bringing a lot of the thought together and it's about how stable things can become unstable if that pattern of nature is lost mm -hmm. so it's about trying to find bits of his writing because it's all his own words to bring those together and make that work and the same with everything else you know like the Unchargeable problem we, we sort of shy away from it a little bit but it does go into the fact that you know, this is an unsolvable problem and thanks to a, a, a general mechanical process <laughs> you know you can you can you can you can sort of you can yeah you know, I think the audience who wants to tune into it Go, I sort of understand what's going on here. He's sort of worked this out and he's used a machine to do it for the first time. Oh, it's a, he's looking at nature now and patterns in nature. And you know, I think the audience who don't know about it can follow that through enough. And I think we've found just the right balance for now as mm -hmm. to how that to how that works. Mm -hmm. just. And do you know what audience you get? Do you know who who comes to see it? Is it, is it people who would already be familiar? With the story, or is it people audiences for this? We've had people who want to come and see a musical yeah. uh, who've been very confused. Yeah. Um, we had one girl come in who was like, I've just been to see a chorus line, I'm going to see this, and then tomorrow I'm going to see Burn the Floor. Uh, <laughs> no. no refunds. <laughs> um, although that's unfair because she did really enjoy it. Um, we've had a lot of people coming who want to see a musical, and some of them have really been excited by uh, what they've seen because it's very different to anything else um, that's on at the moment or that I've seen in musical theatre. Um, and we've had some people who have been like, There aren't enough top hats there aren't <laughs> any top hats um yes, <laughs> yeah um there have been people who come because we've got quite a big regular audience here at the theater who come to see really interesting stories done in a really interesting way and i think those people have really enjoyed it and they've had a good time we've had some fantastic feedback from them and um, from other directors and things who've come to see work here and then we've had people who have a real mathematical scientific turing interest who have been foaming at the mouth with excitement they've really really enjoyed it and it's been yeah. so satisfying because you know, all the people who'd want to really love it those people are you know who this show is really made for yeah and this is maybe why I kept asking you about the biographical stuff in the childhood because when it first started I have to admit, I went like, oh, no, it's just going to be another cliched portrayal of a mathematician who's a nutcase. Yeah. You know, and I thought, oh, no. But then it didn't take long until I completely changed my mind. Yeah. But, um, you know, that relates to what you're saying, that it's, it's a nice thing that you're able to please the mathematicians or the scientifically minded yes. parts of your, mm -hmm. your audience. Because it would be so, so easy to make him look a bit crazy. Because yeah. as Dickie said, yeah. there are so many 
sticks and sort of yeah. things. But they're part of the story, so they have to be there. But yeah. you, you manage to. But we need to. Out. You need to find a way through because that didn't define who he was. And if we put yeah. sort of, sort of some sort of cartoon caricature, which I've seen before in other productions where people yeah. have really overdone it. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I think Dicky. Is, partic- is a particularly fine performance you know he's really found his way through it yeah. and he is the sort of emotional center point and he certainly was the emotional center point of a show that at times had us in tears you can read the article accompanying this podcast and the review of the universal machine on the plus website at plus.maths.org thanks for listening and bye bye